Hi, I'm Harry. Hello, I'm Rory, and welcome to Games on Film. Yes, welcome to episode two of Games on Film, the video game movie podcast. Yep. Episode two, Ready Player One. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's not confusing good. whatsoever. No. So we're going to be talking about the new Steven Spielberg opus. Opus, epic. Epic, Ready Player One. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're already a little bit breaking with format by talking about a film which is not directly adapted Mm. from a video game. It's not a no. traditional video game movie in that sense, but its uh, source material is instead a book, a work of fiction. What is a book? <laughs> we don't know. We only do video games no. and movies. I mean, I've got something here. It's a sort of 300 pages or so. Yes, you have the physical copy of the this... actual book. Oh, they've and... printed out an e-book. <laughs> they've printed found an it. e-book. Wow. Um, yeah, so, but, I mean, this, this book is... Inc- very video game literate is all about a video game ultimately and the structure of the story is just it's a quest much in the way a video game would be when was it published was it 20 uh, 2011 2011 so okay. games were still around then got a quote from usa today on the cover mm-hmm. saying enchanting Willy Wonka meets the Matrix, mm. which actually wraps very much in a nutshell. Which is yes, uh, it's a good synopsis. <laughs> so, um, just to sort of say that we've both read the book. Yes, and, and again, before we go further, spoiler warning: when I'm going to go deep into this film, so please either read the book or watch the film before actually listening to this podcast, because we would hate to spoil the film for you. Uh, we don't want any angry emails. Thank you very much. No, only pleasant ones. Pleasant emails. Passive-aggressive emails. No emails limit. which begin with, um, actually. Mm, please. Um, so, uh, but yes, we've both read the book. Um, I read it a few years after it came out. It was one of those things generating a bit of buzz. I can't remember if I was gifted it or bought it, but I think um, someone just thought, oh, Harry's a big old nerd. He'll probably enjoy this. And... Um, should I just say how I felt about the book? Um, sure. I did quite enjoy it. Um, it's not particularly uh, deep and it's not particularly uh, well written. Well, I think that might be um, a bit unfair because the main character in the book, he's he is a bit of a sort of teenage stream of consciousness style nerd you know, dude. And so, so you think the author was inhabiting the character well, or do think... you think the author actually... Well, is that th- that's the big that way. that's the big question because um, if I was giving the writer credit, um, is it Ernst Klein? Ernest Klein. Uh, Ernest Klein. Uh, um, so if I was giving him credit, I'd say he has very well captured the the, the manner of speaking that of a teen, of a teenage guy would be who spends all his time talking about pop culture. Um, um, like the main character in the film, he's the main character, the, the author. He speeds around in a DeLorean from Back to the Future so I think he's, he's very much writing himself into that film. Yes um, I'll 
I think we'll get on to the sort of mm. character and the main character and the sort of differences in the book and how that sort of feels very much like the author's voice. What did you think of the book? Um, well, I, I similarly, I think uh, this was a gift to me. And again, it was a sort of, uh, I think, recommended by a nerd and I like nerdy things. Mm-hmm. But this was, a, I guess, a few years ago. Um, so I read it maybe four or five years ago or something. Mm. And yeah... I mean, thank you. I, I think I remember talking about this book um, because it is one of those books which was um, optioned as being written, and so there was always hmm. the um, knowledge that it's going to be turned into a uh, into a film. But it was quite a surprise, quite a coup, I'd say, when Spielberg got to be the director because it's totally in love with Spielberg. Um, the book, yeah, um, and. But I remember sort of, I don't know if I was gushing about it, but I enjoyed it um, quite a lot. As again, in sort of a trashy way. It must have been a bit weird for him to like read it. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, Spielberg. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, it, but that, that's the thing. I mean, so I found it perfectly readable. Mm. Um, I kind of enjoyed it. It has the sort of level of a sort of um, fanfic. Mm. Yes, uh, publication. No, it does read like a fanfic, and you know some fanfic can be very entertaining mm-hmm. and very enjoyable and, mm-hmm. and and pleasant to read. Um, I sort of wondered why this was published in a way, mm. and and that kind of thing, and it sort of felt like a sort of young adult book, mm. but targeted at thirty to forty something. I sometimes, you know, I always men. I, I sometimes pick up some books and don't realise until halfway through that this was a young adult book and somebody <laughs> lied to me. They got very enticing um, covers. Yeah, I kind of read there was a series of books. Um Tim Burton adapted is it Miss Peregrine's School for Peculiar Children? Yeah, Miss Peregrine's And it was about halfway through yeah. and I was quite enjoying it. I did feel read very Tim Burtony and this is before Tim Burton was gonna do it. And I did feel like Oh, suddenly the penny drops. Oh, they're talking about love an awful lot in this book. And yes, it was a young adult novel. But uh, I'm actually rereading the book at the moment. I am about 150 pages in. And uh, just before I reread it, having now seen the film, and I thought it'd be good to compare and contrast if necessary. Um, I guess the only other thing worth mentioning in about the book is, you know, it has, since the film has been getting closer and closer to release, there's been a lot of commentary about some of the perhaps misogyny in the book and how the main character is a bit of a creep, and it'll be in, <laughs> in, interesting to see. Um, again, one of my one of my hopes going into the film was if some of that would be addressed because um, I must admit I, I read it the whole way through, and I felt sort of the the romance plot was a bit formulaic, and again on the the male sort of dominated side, um, and so yeah. a lot of these articles came out recently, kind of highlighting. Uh, you know particular angles of the book which you know I can't help but agree with so yeah I mean well we'll I think we'll address that when we talk mm. about the characters and the relationships yeah. there but I sort of I feel about um, uh, Ready Player One as sort of when I read it it was it was fine it was perfectly readable but it was kind of junk and mm. it's only when you sort of like highlight chapters and things out of context, which a lot of people have yes. been doing, yes. that you realise this is just sort of um, kind of fanboy wish fulfilment. Yes, but then... And I, I sort of think that um, anyone who kind of criticises Twilight or yes. criticises Fifty Shades of Grey, yes. they can't say, oh, but Ready Player One is different or no, better. It's, because it's, it's very much the same. It's, you know, it's targeting a very specific yeah. demographic and it's delivering exactly what that demographic wants. Mm. Mm. And so you can't sort of say, 
oh, Twilight's just for stupid teenage girls. It's like, well, stupid but teenage course, girls deserve entertainment. On too. the back of the book, they're not going to... They, they want to get the broadest amount of people to buy it. So the backs of the books always have um, quotes saying one of the most fantastic science fiction films ever read and the most fantastic science fiction books released. And, and then people read it and think like, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. It's not uh, Fahrenheit 451 or something. No. Um, I just So we saw this film um, on a special preview, but it did mean we ended up seeing it at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, which of course video game... Video gamers love waking up very early in the morning to go and see stuff. Um, and it was the night after uh, St. Patrick's Day. So when we left the film and we just looked at each other and we just said, oh, that was, that was exhausting. Yeah, that was my one word <laughs> review afterwards was exhausting. Because <laughs> mm. it's two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah. And, and there's um, a lot of dense... It's material. Very, yeah, it's very dense, and, and, and you, as you would expect from a blockbuster, a lot of bang crashes and wallops at the end. Um, so it was about midday by the time we got out, and it's taken kind of a few days for us to really um, work out what we thought of the film and write down some notes. And now it's been about a week and a half since we saw the film. There might be one or two key details we miss over, but we've got the older wikipedia page here to help us out and um, we'll, we'll muck through it but i think I, I kind of needed that time to decide how i felt about it for those who haven't read the book or or seen the film or don't even know what this is all about <laughs> I'll, you know if you haven't seen any trailers or anything i'll try my best to summarize summarize a little bit mm. um because the film is quite exposition heavy at the start mm. sort of necessarily so there's a lot of concepts and characters and ideas but as far as I can remember, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong at any point, yes. but we, the film takes place. It's Columbus, Ohio. The yep. year is 2045? I just was going to say the near future. Okay. <laughs> but near enough that a man who grew up in the 80s has just died. Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, you can die at any time, really. Yes. Well. <laughs> but, but in particular, this guy. So anyway, it's the future... And uh, everything sucks, Mm -hmm. so people have um, decided to forget about the real world Mm. and take uh, spend most of their time in the Oasis. And the Oasis is a big virtual reality realm, Um, and this whole Oasis virtual reality um, uh, jobby Mm -hmm. was created by James Halliday. Yeah who is a Steve Jobs, Willy Wonka type. <laughs> I think that's what his sort of summation is. Which one had the river of chocolate? I forgot. Um, Steve Jobs. Okay. And Got it was it. Willy Wonka who had the apple factory. That's right. Because I it was all it. about uh, nourishing into, children. Way into his apples. Um, so he created this um, realm with a business partner, Ogden Morrow. Yeah. And uh, James Halliday is played by Mark Rylance, and Ogden Morrow is played by Simon Pegg, the uh, second spaced cast member since yeah. Tomb Raider's Nick Frost, I know, Nick Frost that we've encountered. Um, and Halliday, the creator, has recently passed away, and um, as part of his, um, I don't know, uh, what's it called, will... He does a video message to everyone on the Oasis. And he says, with, um, a don't look for Trinity. or <laughs> Don't look for Trinity. Don't, fo- Burn don't follow me to Yamatai. Burn all the evidence about Hamakai Island. Yamatai! <laughs> um, so, yeah, 
So he, he releases um, a poem, and the poem is guiding people to, to a key. Yes. So it's basically he says there's a key, or does he already say three keys? Yeah, there are three keys, which well, I say three clues lead to three keys. Yes. And those keys lead to three gates, and the gates lead to an Easter egg. Yes. So basically he's decided um, to uh, leave the um, operation of the Oasis mm-hmm. plus several trillion dollars. Yep. To whoever, to whoever solves his clues yeah. and um, obtains the keys mm-hmm. and only a true hero or whatever will obtain the ultimate prize. Yeah. And you've talked for a couple of minutes now without mentioning there's a main character in this film. Yes. Well, I was getting to that. Um, so, uh, basically, um, our main character is a teenager called Wade Watts, mm-hmm. uh, who's played by Ty Sheridan. Yep. And he is just your normal, average, happy-go-lucky teen, except he spends all of his time in the virtual reality realm, and he idolises and worships Halliday. And what they have in common is an obsession with particularly 80s-focused popular culture. Mm-hmm. And so he spent his um, past few years since Halliday passed away dedicating himself, trying to solve the clues, using all he knows about Halliday and pop culture in order to um, obtain ownership of the Oasis. But there is an evil sinister organisation who also want ownership of the Oasis called IOI. Yes. And they are headed by a big bad called Nolan Sorrento, played mm-hmm. by Ben Mendelsohn. Mm-hmm. And they are employing lots and lots of people to sort of also look for those clues. Sort of jack the system, try and, try and beat... Yes, use money and she... power to mm. um, kick off the little guy. From, <sighs> <That's>... <laughs> you know. So that's the kind of setup. Yes, yeah, setup. Of so, the story. quite dense. That isn't it. Yes, and I haven't even gotten to all the other backstory, but that's no, just no. the sort of initial where you are in the first so five ten minutes. It's of a the bit film. like um, it's a bit like Willy Wonka meets the Matrix. Yeah, <laughs> the people of US to, USA today yeah, were right. A good quote. Um, so, I mean, what I liked about the book, I mean, the thing, if you'll tell me what I did like about the book, I think the big, the big hook is this, this quest. Um, he really, you know, he, he is destitute as well as is everyone who lives in his, um, stacks. So where, he, where his home is in a tower of caravans, one on top of the other, yeah, um, which just, are known as the stacks. Yeah. So it's like mobile home mm. skyscrapers. And I always, that's sort of on the front cover of the original mm. book. And I always liked that image. Mm. I think it's kind of a neat dystopian yeah, I've not seen that idea. Before. I think that's and it's it's kind of well realized on the screen. Yeah. Well, you, maybe you should ask this because you read this recently, yes. more recently. Mm. But I sort of, with the film and the book, I wanted to know what is the Oasis because in the book, um, he has to go to class and yes. goes to school and learns stuff about. Mm. history and the oasis and there's like a whole school planet yeah so but in the film but it didn't seem like you know how like second life Mm. they used to have businesses and Mm. operating well a little bit but well i mean i think one thing the you've you've hit on something interesting there because i i guess the book very much conveys that uh, the oasis 
is is effectively the internet. It's everyone is on it. Everyone uses it for absolutely everything. And there's the school system and, and as you say, businesses and things like that. And maybe the film makes it seem more like a recreational thing that people can sort of do without. But um, the book is very much the opening pages talk about how the world is just completely fucked and there's uh, there's there's wars happening at the moment um and you know the world could end at any time so really the only thing that anyone can do um to escape the nightmare is the oasis and and it's very much a, a real place for a lot of people but i think one of the first big improvements the film does is cut out all the school stuff because as rory mentioned there's a lot of exposition right so wade's uh, avatar is called parsival and Parseval um, will go to school on this planet pretty much for noobs. Um, it's called Planet Ludus. And um, the, all, all the, all, the only thing that is on Planet Ludus is schools. And because in the book it costs money, uh, virtual credits to travel to places, he's pretty much stuck there because he's poor. Um, when you die in the Oasis, you lose all your gear, all your credits and all your, your stuff. Another sort of slight shift between the book and film is that the book is it's all about the 80s. Yeah. And perhaps it's because you're told you're being um, the film is told from a first person. The, the book is told from a first person perspective. Um, you're always in the head of this guy and he's always thinking about the 80s and he just he just lists off references to the 80s um, but the film I think again does a perhaps it's partly due to licensing as well what licenses they can get uh, but there is a, a I think a more even balance between um, the 80s and just general pop culture uh, which again I think is another hit um, but the plot and again we'll get into this a little bit but I think the plot and, and some of the characterization feels very 80s mm. um, especially the music by Alan Silvestri as well yes yes it's, he of it... uh, Back to the Future but again, we're talking about references here. I think this is probably as good a place as any to talk about it. I think one thing the trailers have conveyed, and maybe misconveyed, but one thing the trailers and the book seem very heavily heavily leaning on is is references. And I think, well, I think one really annoying thing about the book, and it's one of those things where you either roll with it and accept it or, or it completely turns you off, is that it does seem to be just a lot of references just a list of yeah. 80s stuff where again another way where phil this film in particular is perhaps is better than the book um is rather than being a list of references you can just you can just toss a load of characters into the background and you may or may not see them but it's not like somebody's listing them so i whereas i've seen a lot of um comments on the trailers saying oh it's oh look it's chung lee oh look it's overwatch oh look it's iron giant um, I think the amount of time where the film really relies on references are actually quite few and far between. And in one sequence, which relies heavily on, on a particular film, part of the, the the joke is that one character is entirely not into the references. Yeah, um, yeah. But one way the start of the film, again, differs from, from the book is the very first challenge. Um, I, you know what? I've not written down any of the clues or any of the no, keys, no. I, I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> but um, the first key in the book, and again, this is one thing I would like, maybe it's just because I like fantasy stuff, but in the book, the first key is obtained by entering a, a virtual recreation of um, a Dungeons and Dragons uh, module, which is called, um, I think, Tomb of Horrors. And I, com I completely understand why they changed it, 
but in the book, I like the idea of going down, um, going into a, a crypt uh, or a tomb <laughs> and um, f- just doing the, the whole fantasy section. Um, in the and, and another reason why our hero locates this crypt is because this crypt, this tomb, Oh dear, we shouldn't have done Tomb Raider first, shouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> this um this chamber of horrors, uh, or tomb of horrors is on the school planet where no um egg, self-respecting so self-respecting video gamer would would go to. They wouldn't think to look at the one place for noobs. And so I always like this this thing where Halliday um had decided that the the first clue should be found by somebody with nothing. Um, but in, instead, the film is um, a race. Actually, I keep dancing around this term. They call egg hunters gunters. Yeah. Um, and so the first the first challenge was the, was discovered to be a race, and was, the lines just casually dropped to say that a gunter found it, and so we have a race. Yes, I think it's the idea is to front load the film with a big action set piece. But, you know, you are right. It is trying to be more of an exciting start, but it, it was really exciting. I thought it was a really special sequence. You didn't think it was an in, incomprehensible sea of carnage? Um, <laughs> it, I, I will I completely acknowledge a lot of the special effects, visual effects, are a bit grey and a bit dull looking. They're hyper detailed. But they do remind me very much of modern sort of Xbox One, PlayStation Four graphics. Yeah. Um, they so they're not exactly pretty. And following on from what I was saying earlier about references, a lot of these background characters are extra extraordinarily hard to see. It was yes, it's definitely designed for your Blu-ray, 4K home experience mm. where you can just watch the film on pause. But and um, I just felt for the first time in some time with the race. For the first time in a long while, I felt that... You're going to have to correct me now, but I, I thought the special effects were special. Visual effects or were the, visual. The visual effects were special. Because um, it just there's some long, long, long shots where we're following the vehicles um, through the race and they just don't cut. They just keep going and it felt like a fairground ride. And sometimes you forget a blockbuster film is meant to sort of give you that experience. Yeah, I mean, we didn't see it in 3D. And I think, well, yeah, but at the same time, maybe that would have sort of the overwhelming effect would have been sort of heightened because it was 3D and it makes sense that you're watching a 3D film wearing like a headset goggles, almost like the characters are wearing virtual reality headsets. Mm. So maybe that would have made a bit more sense. I don't know. I I I thought it was entertaining. I thought Mm. it was exhilarating. It had that sense of action. Mm. But it it did also have, I feel like, having executive produced a bunch of Transformers movies, Spielberg has kind of... Like, I, I, I didn't find the Spielberginess in the action sequences or the Oasis stuff predominantly. Mm-hmm. I found that more in the real world yes, stuff. Yes, that's true. And I feel like, I mean, I think it was impressive on the technical level, particularly when it comes to the avatars. I didn't much like the designs. I didn't like mm. Parzival's kind of Final Fantasy yes. sort of like floppy, wispy hair. Mm. Um, but it was well done. I, I I didn't expect it to be so fully computer mm. well, I generated. Think this is one of these these lucky films where they can use the Uncanny Valley to the advantage. So yes. nothing looked quite real. 
you know, we got to see because we got to see the DeLorean and one of the most amazing motorcycles in all of cinema, which is the bike from Akira, owned and operated by um, the secondary character. The, the they're both this, they're both as important as each other, really. But Artemis, Artemis is a fellow uh, Gunter who's um, also after the Easter egg, as many other people are. Just as um, which is we haven't really talked about the Easter egg, but mm. um. It's interesting that this is coming out at Easter time yes. and whether that's intentional. Because, I think the release date is very intentional. Because you also have in cinemas, you have Peter Rabbit, you have yes. Mary Magdalene, which yes. I guess is the, the Jesus-y yes. one. Would Tomb Raider qualify as an Easter film considering Jesus was all like great at... Well, he didn't raid a tomb. He kind of escaped from one. He did escape from a tomb. Um, but there weren't any booby traps from the one he escaped. <laughs> you never know. Um... Again, another one of the big big improvements of this film, I think, because in the book, as established, um, so Artemis, I mean, the whole book is told from the first person perspective of this basically horny, horny young man. And when sort of Artemis first appears, I mean, I've got the book here. Shall I read how she's... Uh, how she's introduced. Oh, oh here we go. Got... Audio... I didn't realise we we're going to have an audiobook section. Yeah, now we've got... Um... So this is when uh, Artemis first okay. arrives hold on, on the scene. Hold on, let me get comfortable <laughs> by, by the fire. Okay, so... <clears throat> she wore a suit of sealed gunmetal blue armour that looked more sci-fi than fantasy. Twin blaster pistols were slung low on her hips in quick-draw holsters, and there was a long, curved elvish sword in a scabbard across her back. She wore fingerless, road warrior-style racing gloves and a pair of classic Ray-Ban shades. Overall, she seemed to be going for a sort of mid-80s post-apocalyptic cyberpunk girl-next-door look, and it was working for me in a big way. In a word, hot. Wow. So hot. So hot and sexy. Yeah. um, Steamy. So it starts that way. It doesn't get much better. And um, they have this sort of competitive relationship, much like in in the film. But um, there does come a point where uh, Artemis in the book tells him to get lost. And he doesn't really take that hint. And he starts emailing her. um, And she keeps saying, leave me alone. And then... um, um, as I said, I'm only 150 pages into my reread of the book, but I certainly get the impression that he, he ends up getting in a big old sulk, and they they do meet up towards the end, and they only meet in the real world at the end of the book, um, okay. like pretty much in the last couple of pages. And um, um, her big thing is that she's got a birthmark, and she's a bit yes. afraid to sort of uh, reveal it. But it's sort of I don't know. I think in the film. It, it still has this creepy vibe because they've only just met in the real... When they meet in real life, I'm just mm-hmm. skipping ahead a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. And he sort of starts touching her face and it's just all a little bit... I don't know. I found it was just a little bit creepy. I mean, her avatar character is a literal manic pitsy dream girl. Yes. Um. So, and I, I get it. There was, there was enough kind of sparring dialogue between them and she gets the upper hand in a few instances and I and I think actually probably compared to the book she does more to puncture his ego um, because I think with I'm, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong but I think Parzival in the book and Wade Watts by that extension mm-hmm. he's very much a 
I know it all mm. and I'm so great. And the book never, I know it's told from his perspective, but the book mm. never kind of really challenges his yes. know-it-all. It's just like, well, of course, I knew how to do this. And mm. of course, because I've read everything and I know everything and I'm yeah. so great. And he's everything which like people accusing Ray and Star Wars yeah. as being like a, a Mary, Mary Sue. Sue. And he's the exact embodiment mm. it's really uh, hypocritical. of that. Here's a passage about how he much he knows about everything. I'm going to try and read it as quickly as possible. Okay. When it came to my research, I never took any shortcuts. Over the past few years, I'd worked my way down the entire recommended Gunter reading list. Douglas Adams, Kurt Vonnegut, Neil Stevenson, Richard K. Morgan, Stephen King, Orson Scott Card, Terry Pratchett, Terry Brutz, Bester, Bradbury, Haldeman, Heinlein, Tolkien, Vance, Gibson, Gaiman, Sterling, Morcott, Scousey, Zelzani... I read every novel by every single one of Halliday's favourite authors, and I didn't stop there. I also watched every single film he referenced in the Almanac. If it was one of Halliday's favourites, like War Games, Ghostbusters, Real Geniuses, Better Off Dead, or Revenge of the Nerds, I rewatched it until I knew every scene by heart. I devoured each of what Halliday referred to as the holy, holy trilogies, Star Wars, original and prequel trilogies in that order, Lord of the Rings, The Matrix, Mad Max, Back to the Future, and Indiana Jones. Halliday once said that he preferred to pretend the other Indiana Jones films, from Kingdom of the Crystal Skull onward, didn't exist. I tended to agree. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why this book really annoys people. <laughs> I also absorbed the complete filmographies of each of his favourite directors. Cameron, Gillian, Jackson, Fincher, Kubrick, Lucas, Spielberg, Del Toro, Tarantino, and of course, Kevin Smith. <laughs> Snooch to the nooch. I spent three months studying every John Hughes teen movie and memorising all the teen di- lines of dialogue. Only the meat get pinched, the bold survive. You should say I covered all the bases. I studied Monty Python, and not just Holy Grail either. Every single one of the films, albums and books, and every episode of the original BBC series, including those two last episodes they did for German television. I wasn't going to cut any corners. I wasn't going to miss anything, something obvious. Somewhere along the way, I started to go overboard. I may in fact have started to go a little insane. Uh, <laughs> I watched every episode of The Greatest American Hero, Airwolf, The Air Team, Knight Rider, Misfits of Science, and The Muppet Show. What about The Simpsons, you asked? Huh, I knew more about Springfield than I knew about my own city. Star Trek? Oh, I did my homework. TOS, TNG, DS9, even Voyager and Enterprise. I watched them all in chronological order. The movies, too. Phases locked on target. I gave myself a crash course in 80 Saturday morning cartoons. I learned the name of every last goddamn GoBot and Transformer. Land of the Lost, Thunder of the Barbarian, He-Man, Schoolhouse Rock, Chi Joe. I knew them all because knowing is half the battle. Who was my friend when things got rough? H.R. Puffin stuff. Japan? Did I cover Japan? Yes. Yes, indeed. Anime and live action. Godzilla, Gamera, Starblazers, the Space Giants, and G-Force. Go, Speed Racer, go. I wasn't some dilettante. I wasn't screwing around. I memorized every last Bill Hit stand-up routine. <laughs> music? Well, covering all the music wasn't easy. It took some time. The 80s was a long decade. Ten whole years. And Halliday didn't seem to have that bad, very discerning taste. He listened to everything. So did I, too. Pop, rock, new wave, punk, heavy metal, from The Police to Journey to R.E.M. to Clash, I tackled it all. I burned through the entire They Might Be Giants discography in under two weeks. Devo took a little longer. I watched a lot of YouTube videos of cute geeky girls playing 80s cover tunes on ukuleles. Technically, this wasn't part of my research, but I had a serious cute geeky girls playing ukuleles fetish that I can neither explain nor defend. I memorised lyrics, silly lyrics, by bands with names like Van Halen, Bon Jovi, Def Leppard and Pink Floyd. I kept at it. I burned the Midnight Oil. Did you know that Midnight Oil was an Australian band with a 1987 hair hit titled Beds Are Burning? I was obsessed. I wouldn't quit. My grades suffered. I didn't care. Jeez Louise. Um, yeah. So that's why people don't like the book. Yes, that's... Yeah. I feel really bad for defending this book now. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad that scene was cut from the film. Um, I think that was toned down a little bit, but there's a, there's, there's a scene where he interacts with um, Nolan Sorrento, the mm-hmm. head of IOI, mm. and 
Nolan is trying to sort of show off his geek credentials because he's trying to barter with them to help him out in the mm. in the competition. And he's having a feed into his ear, sort of relaying all this geeky stuff. Mm. So he's and, got a whole workshop of people behind him, yeah. uh, feeding him in all his geek and knowledge, I, I, so I he's quite, a faker. Yeah, but I quite liked how he had some, you know, quote-unquote, sort of good people on his side. He's got geeks. I mean, they've mm. been paid up and stuff, but it was quite nice how it didn't sort of demonise the whole company in that no. sense. But the whole thing is basically Parzival, like, rejects his offer and is like, yeah, you're not a real fanboy. You're just like a kind of, you know, a hater or whatever. And it has this kind of, I get it in the in the scene, and it's quite funny. But mm. at the same time, it has this real gatekeeping attitude, like, <laughs> oh yeah, but you didn't do this, and you don't know about this, so you can't enjoy geek culture like we do. You don't mm. understand. Well, I think that's that's an, a notion which is very heavy in the book. But you're right. I think the film tones it down. Yeah. And, and again, it really helps that what, what Spielberg and the writer writers of the film did. And you know, we have to you know, give where credit where credit's due. Um, Ernst Klein. Ernest. Ernest Klein. So I'm thinking of Blofeld. Ernest Klein. Ernst Stavro Klein. Klein. <laughs> Ernest Klein, he did co-write the film. Yes, with Zach Penn. Yeah, so I so you know, to to the writer's credit and Spielberg's credit, they clearly had a look at what was perhaps problematic in the book and changed it. So we meet the live action um, Artemis uh, about midway through. Yeah. Um and while she does reject him halfway through the film, um Parley is is because not because he's being a creep, but sort of his uh, his own stupidity. Um, Sorry, I jumped ahead wildly all over uh, the no. place. But I think we shall we skip back a little bit. And yes. So we they so they are doing the race. Yes. And the uh, first action scene, and we're just talking about it now again. Yeah, the first action scene. Um, and I so I found it very exciting, but no one manages to do it. Um, no one manages to beat the race, and so um, uh, Parseval or slash Wade he goes to um, what's known as the Halliday Archives. Yes, and again, this is another thing which um, was obviously changed for a film to make it more visual. Because in the book, you know, he's just a scholar of the works of Halliday. He um, goes off. Um, I th- just I think it's called um, Anorak's Almanac, which is a um, kind of his autobiography or his biography full of all the references and he, he pours all over the 80s stuff um and somebody somewhere clearly felt that him pouring over books wouldn't be very interesting so they've made a, a virtual reality library with a curator um who takes you through the memories of Halliday well sort of there's like a whole room of recordings of his life, which I found quite creepy <laughs> um, because rather than reading what happened to Halliday, um, you see video recordings of him gen- having conversations with his, his co-worker, his um, uh, Simon Pegg's character, uh, Og. Yeah. And um, like what happened with the first clue being changed from a quest on a noob planet to a race which can be won by anyone um i feel um the halliday archives again really just made the opening stuff a little less special it looks great because he does the thing where the characters can go forward or backward he's controlling these vr characters and so you get to see uh, halliday and um og arguing over something and 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 og and, and halliday says something along, along the lines of 
oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just go back really fast? And mm. that sounded really clunky. I mean, it, it seems like obviously he made these clues so that people could do it. So do you think at that, that point in his life he said that or do you think he inserted that into um, the programme so mm, people could find it? I guess that is an interesting question. And actually, I think this film is full of interesting questions <laughs> which actually don't really you know, get touched, get explored in any great detail. And you can argue to the cows come home, wherever you want to film, stop it every five minutes and talk about why have characters chosen their avatars? What does it say about them? Uh, sort of yeah. deal. But it, it's not really interested in that. Um, I choose to believe that these recordings are meant to be the, the honest truth. And I, I liked how they were... I mean, I... I really liked the sort of way it was displayed and it's mm. quite nice how you they sort of change the angles and the effects that they do there uh, sort of make it look like a museum display but mm. a, an interactive one and mm. I liked it in a visual sense. I think it was... It was a slightly visual effects masturbation. I felt I felt like they came up Isn't with the whole film. Mm, though? That's true, but I think they thought of an effect and tried to fit it in somewhere, as opposed to. But it's not too dissimilar to. Um, I think there's a similar effect in Blade Runner twenty forty nine with the sort of dream maker, mm. and I liked how that was visually represented. That yes. was a lot better. Yeah, in how it was, it was done. But I I I thought there was it's an interesting way to use visual effects which aren't so mm. sort of like. Here's a big monster coming at you. It's just yeah. more subtle and interesting. But where it all boils down to, as I was saying a moment ago, um, it does sort of feel that anyone who was obsessively watching the videos could have worked it out. And I think the book does a slightly better job of making it that only somebody in his situation could yeah. have worked it out. And you could argue that one makes one special... But one. It, if if the, the book almost makes it destiny, I suppose that it was him who who solved the first clue, and and the book does, the film does require him to be smart to work it out. Mm. But it, it does sort of feel both of it being a race which anyone can win. I mean, again, the first thing I do the, the way the clue he 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 gets off Halliday is that rather than starting at the finish line and zipping forward, he needs to drive backwards. And I don't know if you've played any racing video game. The first thing I do is reverse and go down the other way just for shits and giggles. Well, I sometimes do that with, say, like a platform game. Like if it's a Mario game or no, something, sometimes if you I go remember, left instead of right. I was but... playing Mario Kart with Akito screaming at me as I was going backwards. I was, turn around! This is not how she grew at me. Maybe, yeah. Maybe So, I mean, I mean the, the, the Halliday died five years ago. And so for five years, I've been trying to work out how... To, how to get the first clue and a good number of years has been spent trying to beat this race and I, I find it difficult to believe that nobody tried reversing backwards really quickly. But what does that say about society? Everyone wants to rush forward and mm, not stop and look around once in a while. Again, I'd like to maybe I'd like to credit the writers and even Spielberg with that but I, I don't know if that's the case. <laughs> I think it was just good shorthand um, and there's a lot of fun when he races backwards and goes underneath the track and sees wireframe versions. Again, that's another wireframe version of the world and the track and everything. It's a lot of fun. But he arrives at this um, sort of fountain in the middle of a park and there are all these trumpets and cymbals playing without any players. And you got a little hint of the old Spielberg magic there because he, um, he's a very playful filmmaker. He's, he's uh, I mean, he's also, as we said in, in an earlier episode, incredibly video game literate. So, again, one strength this game has is it, it was it 
felt fully versed in in video game language and it'll be interesting to see what anyone who's never played a video game will think because they drop lines like clans and yeah dlc I, and things like that I, I sort of wonder if there's an alternate version of this where for some reason halliday instead of being obsessed with video games and popular culture was like obsessed with the renaissance <laughs> or like obsessed with the bible and they had to recite bible verse or be a good sequel i was just, wondering you know, where a sequel could go but now i know yeah it turns out wade watts is like a bible freak and he yeah. turns the oasis into like the mm. promised land or or something or mm. revelations <laughs> to keep it interesting go to revelations yeah. world yeah, so basically, um, he wins the key, and he sort of he sort of shares that information with his select group of friends. That's right. We have um, skipped over a little bit because he does the race twice, and um, the first time they do it, everyone wipes out. The Akira bites gets crushed, and he um, offers um, to take part um, Artemis's crushed Akira bike to his best mate uh, H who's this big, burly uh, fellow Gunter. And um, there's like a little cute meet-cute scene. Yeah, H has like a workshop, mm. so... Uh, they sort uh, of casually drop is... their own, I can fix that in five minutes. Yeah. Like it's a natural tinker. <laughs> but it's actually in this scene where... Um, I know as soon as you do geeky references, mm-hmm. and as soon as you sort of you open yourself up, mm-hmm. you're going to get picked on. Because if you get one thing wrong... Yes. Then, you know, the geeks will come after you. But... Uh, in this scene, they're chatting each other, they're flirt- flirting with each other, and they're sort so of Artemis and Parseval. Yeah, so they're exchanging little Halliday facts and see who knows what. So Artemis is like favorite first-person shooter, and um, Parseval says Goldeneye, mm-hmm. and then it's like what character? And um, Halliday's favorite character is Odd Job. What, and a what prick. mode? And what mode? Slappers <laughs> only. And everyone, goddamn knows, no one plays as Odd Job. It's no. not allowed. Halliday is a cheat. He's a prick. He's a <laughs> fool. He plays the shortest character in Goldeneye. <sighs> Slaps. His favorite mode is Slappers only, which is a stupid mode unless you play uh, it licensed to kill rules. Well, but you, I don't think they even mentioned did that. Did the film lose you then? Twenty I minutes was lost. in. I was just like, okay, they got no notes past that. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I didn't know all the references and all the stuff, but don't get Goldeneye wrong. <laughs> Stop wanna... getting Bond wrong. <laughs> but that's it's fine. I'll let it lie. I mean, okay. I'm not going to be one of those. Oh, they got this wrong, that thing. But I just sort of thought. They got all the facts mm. right, but person like Halliday. Actually, we'll talk about Halliday just very briefly. I really liked Mark Rylance in this role. Yeah, I mean, he, he also plays um, the CGI character Anorak, who's like a big wizard with a pixely cloak. And I liked him very much. Again, I've got yes. just a big hard on for wizards, it seems. Um, but um, so any any good wizard imagery you want to send me? Just send it this way, please. Please do not bombard us um, with wizard porn, please. <laughs> well, I brought up the warehouse because this is where we, we meet H. And um, again, H is um, Parseval's uh, best mate. And they spend all the time looking for the egg. And again, um, H is one of the first people to worry that um, Parseval slash Wade is getting really infatuated with Artemis. And suggests that maybe Artemis is using Wade to get hold of the second key. They quickly go on a uh, on a date to um, a virtual reality uh, disco, a virtual reality dance, because one of the clues I believe is regarding um, how um, Halliday was, was never went to a dance of a particular girl called Kira. Yes, so Kira was someone who. Um... They check in the Halliday archives, mm. 
um, was uh, someone who um, uh, went on a date with Halliday mm. and then ended up being Ogden Morrow's wife. Yes. And it was all about how you can't go back in the, to the past mm. and, and all this kind of stuff. So they go to this nightclub mm. uh, in reference um, to that. And they, there's a big kind of floaty portal thing where people fall through the sky. Not unlike the fizzy lifting drink room, <laughs> to use the Willy Wonka again, but it's not unlike the Willy, uh, the fizzy dr- lifting drink mm. uh, room. But um, watching them all the time is one of my favourite characters, um, who uh, you've told me, well, is voiced by T.J. Miller, who yes. you've told me is now a, a, okay. a problematic person, which is a shame. Yes, not just because he was in the Emoji movie. No. Um, Yes, there was. There's been some allegations of, of mm. sexual misconduct and which, assault in the past, which is a, a bit of a shame because um, this character, I so T J Miller plays this basically video game bounty hunter called Irock, who is re- is definitely a bit of comic relief. He's got a great design with a big old skull in his tummy and mm. uh, a sort of Klingony face and a hood, um, but he does. This, he has this nice little comical tension within him where he um, um, he is legitimately a threat. He's the big bad. He is employed by the head of IOI, Nolan Sorrento, um, to take down um, anyone who would threaten IOI's uh, plans. Um, and that's definitely with that character. I think, like. I mean, I think there's more humour in that character than in the book. The book is played quite straight. Yes, yes. The whole film is actually really, really funny. I think towards the end, there's a very real risk that Irock's going to lose his avatar and all this stuff. And he just says, hey, I've got, I've got 10 years worth of shit on this thing. And that's his biggest concern. 10 years worth of like digital yeah. artefacts and things. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he, he was a good, funny character, but also managed to be a bit of a threat. And you knew if he's in the room, then the, our heroes are going to be in trouble. Yeah, because he's in lead with um, Sorrento. And mm-hmm. Sorrento, um, he's the big bad of the real world. Mm. And like the IOI's plans are very much... Um, not only have control, but there was quite a cute scene when they're in a boardroom and mm. they, they sort of just show what it will look like if they take control and it's just 80% pop-up ads Yes, on people's screen. vision, won't, they won't be able to see the game. They'll just see a lot of pop-up ads. I mean, yeah. I kept thinking that this was basically EA games <laughs> with their loot boxes and things. Yeah. So I think that storyline and, and also net neutrality because you could say you can say the Oasis is... The internet, you could say the Oasis is smartphones, social media. It's a few, it's again, very tied into modern um, communication, mm. modern uh, internet. And um, anyone trying to threaten the, the perceived freedom of the internet. I know if you go deeper, 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 there's, the internet's not quite as free as you might think. Um, but it's all about that sort of thing. And we, the last thing I want is big business to take over uh, the internet. Um, and actually... Since we talked about IROC and since we talked about Sorrento, um, what do you think about Ben Mendelssohn and Sorrento and his pl- plan to <clears throat> stop the rebels getting the Death Star plans? <laughs> yes, I mean he's he's sort of um, I liked him very much in Rogue One actually, and I th- mm. I, d- I do think he's a really good actor. I've liked him in a lot of a lot of movies. Um, he's very good at being kind of a scumbag <laughs> and a bit sleazy it was slightly surprising i mean his, his character i joked about it but his character is identical almost identical to rogue one yes. I, do, I did prefer him in rogue one there was okay. this sort of attitude of um he felt he wasn't getting his due in road in, yeah. in rogue one um whereas in this one he feels like he, he's top dog 
he is a generic 80s businessman, which again is quite appropriate. There's always like the guy who wants to buy the, the parents' houses and turn them into, into apartments or something. Yeah, he's not too far removed from like pretty much the, nor- the nasty high school principal role. And I think mm. it's quite funny how like in the Avatar realm, he's still wearing a business suit and except he's more kind of Bruce Wayne kind yeah, of style. He's Avatar. got like a huge lantern jaw. I know, and... but he's so evil. I think he has yeah. red eyes at some point. And, yeah. Um... But talking about the baddies in general, mm. just very quickly before we get back to the plot. So I, I liked the design of the IOI avatars. I mean, yes, again, it's very, cool. it's very, it's still quite Tronny. Yeah. Um, but I liked the I liked design um, and I liked how... That was all set up. I liked his uh, Sorrento's sort of second in command finale. Well, you know what? I've written no notes about her because she did her job well and she's got a good look. Um, yes, yeah, so but... it's a very much shorthand kind of thing. She's got a sort of severe fringe. Mm. She reminded me of the sort of foot soldier in Blade Runner 2049. Yes. Except I didn't like that character in Blade Runner 2049, mm. but I liked her in here because I felt she was just like... Yeah, she'll get the job done. And it was sort of minimum effort, minimum fuss. But I thought it was just like, yeah. And I I think apparently she is in Tomb Raider as well. She plays one of Lara's friends at the beginning, Mm. I think. I was trying to place her. Um, Hannah Hannah John Kamen. mm, But she... um... I think she had a funny a funny relationship with uh, Sorrento. There was a sort of undercurrent of something. Um, not not sexual tension in the slightest. It was more... Um, you know, power. Power. And she could do her job. Yeah. And, then, and he and, couldn't. And he couldn't quite do his job. And so that was, that was quite funny. You needed somebody to go out and do Sorrento's dirty work. Yeah, you needed, you needed action in the real world, mm. basically. But in this uh, disco... As yeah, I said, back to the nightclub. Back, back to the nightclub. Irock overhears the conversation between um, Artemis and Parseval, and um, overhears Parseval using his real name, which is Wade, and using this information. This can get fed back to IOI, and they quickly destroy um, the stacks in which um, Wade's uh, aunt and lover live. Yes, played by Ralph Innocen. Yes. From the office, Finchy. Yes. Um, doing his best, I guess, Ohioan. <laughs> I don't know why accent, accent that was. Maybe, I don't know. But um, yeah, they, we have a classic Spielberg scene. Not that classic and good, but there's always a Spielberg scene with a tough family life. The and main character comes from a broken home. Comes from a broken home. Uh, I guess the fact that they get blown up by IOI means you're not too sad <laughs> because you didn't really like those characters but i think you absolutely empathize with um him losing blood relatives but also of everyone in the stack gets blown up as well yeah and again this high sorrento again uh, i have read just read this chapter in the book as well and and both times uh saying that no one's going to care about these impoverished people in the stacks um they're just going to think it's a blown up meth lab or some other explosion um so um I think that's like an effective scene. I mean, the devastation is effective and the horror of it. And oh my goodness, this is real. Um, mm. It happens a bit earlier in the book and it, ha- it happens almost right away after you got the first key. Uh, after the stats gets blown up, Wade gets, you think, sort of kidnapped. Um, but he, well, he does get kidnapped. Mm. Um, but he's actually just taken to where um, real life IRL Artemis mm. is hanging out. And so they meet in the real world. And it's from that point that they sort of decide to sort of team up and and work together. 
Yeah, um, she, she says, welcome to the resistance. And yeah. I don't think, I was actually, I think she was, that. she didn't mean that literally, because I thought, oh, great, we've got this whole network of people in the real world. No, and it's just no, a warehouse. It's just a warehouse. And, and um, but again, I like the fact that we meet Samantha for the first time in real life halfway through. Um, she She's very worried about her appearance um, when she was in um, uh, the Oasis, but, in, you know, she's got a small birthmark, but it was, it was, not really noticeable at all. Yeah, I think, but I think the film is just like you know, even if you're imperfect, you're still beautiful. And yeah, I, it's a nice I message, it, but it's also a little bit milady. It would have been a bit braver if um, well, you got you got two blokes here talking about a lady's appearance on the internet. I apologise, but I, I think you know, all these people were kind of Hollywood pretty. Even the main character who looks like a nerd, he's still. He's still acceptable Hollywood nerds. Yeah, like, he's no not, acne. No, no. I, I think sort of terrible moustache. They, they would have had. They just look like an average human being in the real world. But here, they all kind of looked again acceptable. <laughs> so um, once they're in the real world, they um, she sort of dawns on her how to get key two. Yes, they pull their resources. The clue is regarding a creator who hates their creation, mm-hmm. um, and I think they go to the Halliday archives. And there's some sort of a bet as well, isn't there? There's some sort of bet that Wade mates with the curator. Mm. Can't remember exactly. <laughs> no, no <laughs> we did watch this cur- a week the, and a half ago. The curator sort of like pays up for a bet and gives them a quarter. A quarter. Um, which is so significantly be important played. later. Remember the quarter. Maybe I'm jumping ahead by giving a spoiler now. I mean, mm. we're spoiling the whole film. Mm-hmm. But I knew that the curator was voiced by Simon Pegg. Yeah, pretty much straight away. I did it. And I thought it was just a cute dual role thing. I I forgot about the fact that, oh, it might be some sort of connection with his actual, with Ogden Mm. uh, Morrow. Turns out he's a little bit of a slugworth, to use a Willy Wonka. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, Parallel again. So they uh, work out the clue and then it's basically this date that um, Halliday and Kira... um, Yes, they would have gone on a date to see a film... I think, oh, I think they film? did go on a date and they mm. went to see a film, right? Oh, this is and all relating to the dance, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and they go through a list of films that he watched in that particular week that he would have uh, mm. gone to see. I think it was The Fly remake. It was mm-hmm. Say Anything. Mm. And uh, they land on The Shining. Yes. Spielberg's mate, Kubrick. <laughs> yes. We referenced Kubrick and Spielberg in the first episode. And here... I mean, well, Spielberg and Kubrick have previous in terms of ai and and such so i think if anyone's going to take a run at one of the most iconic works at cinema i think spielberg is has permission he does do you think knowing knowing kubrick as you do rory (laughs) yeah we were palling around do you think kubrick would be well up for having um his film um used in this way because actually what happens is um are five there's like five people at the top of the scoreboard the high five the high five is uh wade slash parcival uh artemis slash her real name is samantha but i think i'll just keep calling her artemis (laughs) um h uh who's uh we haven't met yet we we haven't met in the real world yet and also um two uh japanese avatars called uh i think Daito. Well, I think Sho is meant to be Chinese, but okay. they like dressed as a ninja. But I think they say their real name is like Zhou or something. I thought they were brothers. 
Well, I think it was... I think they maybe changed that slightly in the film. Okay. I'm not sure. Well, they, they're Japanese ninjury avatar type characters. Yeah. So the five of them go to the Overlook Hotel from The Shining and a perfect recreation. I think this might be... I, I can see exactly why someone would be very, very upset well, as to what I mean, happens. Sort of spoiler, I did love this bit. No, I, <laughs> I think it's possibly the most memorable sequence mm. in the film. So what they do is they basically insert their avatars into the film itself. Yes. And why I think... in So in the book, there's a parallel, but the film that they have to recreate, mm. um, the challenges they have to recreate the whole film and use every single bit of dialogue word for word, mm. and that film is War Games. Now, mm. I hadn't seen War Games when I read the book, mm. so I found that incredibly dull. Yes, it was just reading the novelization of the yes, um, but film. It, and there was lots of references there. But the reason why using the Shining works is um, because even if you haven't seen that film, the imagery of it is so iconic. Yes, that you can still get the references. It's like if you watch, you know, the Shining sort of section of Treehouse <laughs> yeah, of Horror the in the Simpsons. But it's also a bit of an odd film to reference in a PG-12 rated movie. I mean, you know, I, I grew up watching horror films, so I must have seen it when I was about 12. But um, you, I think you're just going to end up with a lot of people in the car saying, like, so, Daddy, what was that whole bit? And yeah. it's just a, like a, a generic horror film love. Um, but... As I said earlier, I think this sequence is one of the few sequences which relies heavily on on some knowledge of the film. And H, uh, they get they split up in in the hotel, and H ends up walking around the hotel, um, not knowing the film because the character doesn't like horror films. And yeah. so there's a, there's a lot of laughter. I think the most amount of laughter in our audience, which of course is made up of of geeks having found this golden ticket to go and see the film um a lot of the geeks were laughing as h goes around a corner and sees the two little girls the two twins and just thinks they're really cute little girls yeah and runs up to the lift and then the lift uh, opens and all the blood comes out of course and you know i get tickled that we're watching a 12 movie with just blood all over the yeah. screen and, and like, someone and then they get attacked by a kind of Na- zombie grandma zombie with a knife. Grandma. Naked zombie grandma. Exactly. Um, when the scene started, I thought this is a bit bizarre, referencing like one of the most terrifying films ever made yeah. um, in a 12 movie. I think, it, again, they sort of... Spielberg was like, I, I know how to play this. Let's yeah, move. I mean, it's, it's not the only thing because like earlier on, I think there's a scene where Goro from Mortal Kombat appears. Yes. And like a chest burster pops out yes. like in your face and, you know, it turns out just to be Artemis wearing a costume. Yeah. Um, and later on we get fucking Chucky. Yeah, there's... um. So when we, um, in, when we cut back and forth between the real world... And the video game world. We sometimes cut back and forth between um, the video game world and all the people at IOI headquarters in these sort of white rigs where we're all hooked up. And there's some brilliant imagery when a whole bunch of them get killed in a big battle at the end and all their rigs go red. And I think the yeah. cutting between the two really helps sell the effect of the, these video game deaths do have some sort of an impact. And it's quite fun, partly because the... CGI in the Oasis is often a bit hard to follow. I and mean, so if you get this visual reminder of how it's affecting people in the real world, it really works. But yeah, as Rory mentioned, um, there's a, uh, as well as um, reference to The Shining, we get uh, Freddy Krueger and Alien show up. And also 
um, Chucky is used as sort of a, a weapon. Yeah. He's from... thrown. He's thrown at somebody who shouts "fucking Chucky," <laughs> yeah. which again, great for the kids. What was your favourite bit? Bit Jemima. You <laughs> are fucking Chucky. But they enter a ballroom where there's all these ghosts dancing, and they hide. They say this isn't in the film. Yeah. So they it it for some reason there's like the ballroom in the film has been replaced with like a zombie ballroom which looks like a haunted mansion but it's actually meant to be a gregarious games game gregarious games being the company mm. that started the oasis and dancing around with a zombie is kira h just sort of hops along on the zombies heads in order to reach no artemis mm. sort of hops along on the zombies heads to try and reach kira and then ask her for a dance and the key is obtained <laughs> trying to remember the scene of the keys obtained uh, yeah no no but remember. like you just have to ask for the dance and then i see then they unlock yeah no, the that's key. the thing artemis falls on top of um akira and you think we're going to kiss but she just asks for a dance doesn't she yes um all they all get the key how does uh so artemis <clears throat> get kidnapped um there's a raid that's the thing yeah but there's... i was just trying to work out how the raid was gotten was wade was kidnapped by a tattoo guy mm-hmm. they spot the tattoo guy in a market mm-hmm. trace him back to the lair where uh artemis and parsifal are hanging out and that's how ioi capture mm. um artemis so but yes I guess so the ioi raids i mean is there any government in this world well so the very end of the film they do this big high-speed chase mm-hmm. and um basically nolan sorrento is like chasing after the 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 heroes mm-hmm. um and um it's like he threatens to kill them and then oh the police show up and it's just like oh yeah there's police yeah. <laughs> no i mean it's very cyberpunky to have um big business be the governments but it doesn't really make that clear and you you think if if it was a sort of cyberpunk neuromancer situation where there's no governments there's just businesses um you think they they couldn't would make it so they couldn't get arrested or they'll just break the game and just make the game work for them yeah but, uh no we, we do have to have cops at the end and that's quite nice thing future cops even if it's they're not very futuristic no they didn't have like uh hats with um like uh, no. LED sort of screens. They didn't want to make the real world too cool. Yes, and uh, so Wade makes uh, his escape. And, and finds himself in the truck of um, H in real life. Yes, a postal truck rig with Daito and Show and H in the driving seat. Mm-hmm. And that's played by Lena Waite. So it turns out the big surprise is that she's a lady. H, a big burly man, is actually a lady. A lady. Um, H is revealed to be a lady and you could say let's have a discussion about that um, I looked this up on Wikipedia and, and you know I must have missed it because it was early but apparently she H, uh, H is uh, a lesbian and so she's been kicked out from her family home and that's why she's on the run but again I'm, I'm getting what for... the actor or no the um, the character because okay. the actor is a lesbian okay well, I mean, the Wikipedia article, I had to refresh myself by looking at Wikipedia. Okay. Um, it said that that is the reason why she's um, she doesn't live at home. And it might be just one of those frustrating things where, again, they sort of hinted at it. But if you're not looking for it, it passes you by. Yeah, there's some sort of reference to it where like H is saying, oh, you don't know about Artemis, not only just in terms of, mm. you know, they could be after your eggs. 
but also, you know, they could turn out to be a big chunky dude or something. Yeah. And I think with, um, so Lena Waits, she, um, uh, I didn't watch the episode yet, but she won an Emmy co-writing an episode of Master of None, which was based on her own experiences of coming out oh, to her right. family. Okay. Um, and so I think maybe that's part of it. I don't know whether that's but- sort of really referenced in the film no but i mean again there's two schools of thought and 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 one school of thought is certainly you know when um parcival first sees um when all the characters meet each other in real life it takes just a a moment for them to say oh so you're you're uh h um and then they just move on and you can certainly say that's a very nice thing how everyone the wonderful thing about the oasis is that everyone is accepted for their, their personality and who they are, not and not you know, what they look like or what they are. Um, but again, another science fiction film maybe that, that could be a whole topic about doing what being accept the gosh, what's the expression? The the conflict between what you want to be and who you actually are. And meanwhile, uh, Artemis is taken to the HQ of IOI because they have obtain the final the location for the final key and if there's actually this is great bit with all the ioi people trying to beat the shining level yeah and you they're all in their pods and they're all screaming yeah. <laughs> um, it's a great they got a big laugh where everyone's just like ah like the twins and all the blood um but they finally get to castle anorak on planet doom um and um they put a force field around the castle so no one can get in mm-hmm. and um they decide to put artemis into a dentured servitude um she gets put into a uh like basically a, a portaloo <laughs> a digital a portaloo in the real world yeah. with a vr kit she's locked into and um i don't know why you would need someone to lift um, boxes in a video game unless you're playing Shenmue yeah um, she sort of becomes a, a virtual reality slave and she has to sort of move stuff around in game these movies you're doing with their slaves is that I know um, what's his name Wade takes it upon himself to go into the virtual world and to attack this castle Wade does this big speech to get anyone who's anyone who's connected to the Oasis to attack Castle Anorak and then this is probably the big scene which, which causes a lot of the internet to roll their eyes where Reference upon reference upon reference rolls over the uh, horizon um, to attack the castle. And they do that thing where uh, a clearly impenetrable force field they attack for flippant ages. <laughs> yeah, um, when but, there's no point because, you know, they know it's an impenetrable force, force field. and Impenetrable force field. An impenetrable force field. But, you know... Well, I, mean, I, I know what I think actually. Well, how, did, how do you feel about this big battle with all the uh, um, things you recognise fighting things you didn't recognise? I remember this. Yeah, um, I remember. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was sort of fine. Um, so that sounded I, like a ringing endorsement. Yeah, again, it is a bit Transformers-y in terms mm. of just a lot of stuff happening. Mm. I think... By this time, our brains were pretty much mush. Yeah. Because of I mean, all the stuff. <clears throat> I mean, I kind of like, so the final challenge is basically they have to com- uh, complete, well, they have to play an Atari game or something. Mm. Um, and I wonder why they didn't go with E.T. As the, <laughs> as the choice of game they had to play. I wonder why Spielberg no. neglected to include well, that. Yeah, so there's this massive battle with um, like the Iron Giant and, and Chucky, as we mentioned, and all these characters like Killing Teenage Turtles show up. Um, kicking I think it's battle toads. There's a battle toad and turtles. Oh, is there? Yeah, oh, finally together, together at last. Uh, yeah, it's like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, 
Well, it's interesting to work out what it would have been like if there was literally no IP laws. Because, again, this is a Warner Brothers film, so luckily they do have a lot of licenses they can use. Uh, I think there was a little bit of um, uh, push and pull about whether any Star Wars references were going to be in this. They, they name-dropped the Millennium Falcon, but no Star Wars stuff is in this. And it's one of those things where Spielberg, if, if Lucas George Lucas properly owned... Star Wars like he used to, there would probably been a lot more Star Wars in this film. Harry, who mm. would win in a fight yeah. between Aliens and Die Hard? <laughs> Aliens and Die Hard. Well, um, because John McClane, he, he lives in air ducts, I would imagine he would beat the shit out of any aliens he found up there. Who would win in a fight between Aliens and two Die Hards? <laughs> <laughs> um, well... <sighs> I am genuinely thinking about this question, though. What? Who would win in a fight between all the John McClane's of the various Die Hard films? Has the, Bruce Willis ever been in a video game movie? He's been in a video game. Yeah. He's in uh, Apocalypse. Yeah, he was in a PlayStation game. He yeah. wasn't in the Die Hard trilogy PlayStation game. No. But he was in, in that. He was a... That was a big thing at the time, digitally mo-capping an actor. He was in G.I. Joe Retaliation, which is based on a toy. Mm. Um, but I don't think he's been in a video I'd game movie. to a video game movie. Mm. I mean, it's funny, actually. People have found the trailers of this film really obnoxious, but things like Lego Batman and stuff are full of references as well. Well, that's but what people I... complain less about So those. there's this meme at the moment where it's saying, oh, Avengers Infinity War is generally the biggest crossover event in cinematic history. Mm. But the thing is, is that... Okay, forgiving the fact that the crossover is between properties all owned by the same company, so yes. it's technically not a crossover. But the fact that... I don't know, all these things coming together, so you have Iron Giant and Mecha Godzilla mm. and um, Gundam mm. all having a big robot fight off, mm. and that should thrill and excite. Mm. But the problem is, is that we've had these things before, like the Lego Batman movie, like mm. Lego movie. It's not novel anymore to have these things like clashing together, and so I was a little bit just like, yeah, I guess we've got. Chucky and mm. fighting It does seem a and... bit pick and mix, but again, that's part of, I suppose it's part of the fun of this world where anyone can be anything, and so it's actually, references might be kind of niche, partly because that might be all they can get. Mm. I mean, I don't know if, you know, Chucky being in it, is that a result of the writer just loving Chucky and they really want Chucky, or do you well, think it's because, what can we get? Steven Spielberg was a notorious child's play fan. He, yeah, exactly. He had the same idea, but someone beat him to the bush. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it is licensing. I guess, like, with Spielberg, sort of, you know, has the might to unite mm, but whatever the... he wants. And the, you just, in the credits, there's just a very long list of courtesy of, courtesy <laughs> of, copyright of. Yeah, but in the in the book, um, we do have Mecha Godzilla, and both Rory and I are Godzilla fans. And, um, you know... It was in the film in the book. Godzilla fights Ultraman. In the film, he fights Gundam. I yes. believe. Um, and you know, uh, the Gareth Edwards Godzilla film came out a few years ago, and I quite enjoyed that. The main character was crap, but um, 
the the one thing I think the film was really missing was the Godzilla theme. And so I got very excited when Mecha Godzilla shows up with the Godzilla theme and there's a lovely moment when I thought, oh, this is what I was missing. Yeah, although uh, I hope they haven't sort of stolen the actual Godzilla movie's thunder. No, you, you couldn't. If you're listening again, uh, who's directing the next Godzilla film? Uh, the guy who mate, did Trick or Treat and Krampus. Yeah, mate, please put in that Doherty, Michael Michael Doherty, yeah. I think. Well, we're getting all this craziness happening outside Castle Anorak. But inside, as Rory said, um, the final key is really low-key. It's just playing the Atari. It's not Thor's brother. No, it's not Thor's brother. It's just playing this tiny little crappy adventure game which had the world's first ever video game Easter egg in it. Yes. And and this is quite interesting because it's one of that this factoid is one of the first things you learn in a book about easter eggs to explain what a video game easter egg is it talks about how uh, in the Atari game adventure um the creator wasn't able to uh, put his name anywhere on the box or the packaging and so he created an easter egg where you could you drag a little pixel into a, a special place and you saw um the this game was designed by Ro- uh, i think it's warren robinette it was kind of odd watching this film thinking, oh, I kind of know all this. And a part of me wished that I hadn't read the book. So so this would have been, I would like to have seen how this scene lands. If it, having all this madness outside, but in the very centre of Castle Anorak is a small television playing a, a crappy game. And this is, this is, sorry, it's not a crappy game. You know what I mean. Retro isn't crappy. <laughs> it was like, you know, basic game um, um you have this line of ioi soldiers trying and failing to play uh, atari games and i kind of like that you know where have we where have we where have we um come from um and where we are right now um we get to a point where because uh, artemis is on the outside helping out everyone um and get and hacking uh, the ioi uh, stuff. Um, she manages to drop the force field, which allows the big attack to happen um, to Castle Anorak. And because Sorrento doesn't actually give a flying fuck about the Oasis, um, he actually says he he kind of hates all these games and gamers and things. Um, he detonates something called the the Cataclysm. Yeah. Um, which basically kills all the avatars, so they all lose their their junk and. Um, the only person left alive is Parseval. No. Because his bet with the curator gave him a coin, which is an extra life. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. So he gets to play uh, adventure, adventure um, on his own without any distractions. And I mentioned earlier how I like the little vignettes of people playing uh, Oasis. I also have got a big soft spot for films where people are watching something happening on on Teddy, like the Truman Show, where everyone's gathered around going, <gasps> and um, in the in IOI, all the 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 scholars of Halliday, all the nerds, um, they're all kind of rooting for him as well, which sort of humorises the company, makes the company not seem like a big evil conglomerate, even though they are. And it's nice just, I, I did like how it's like big crazy action scene, but it all boils down to a very small, yes. quiet moment. That feels more kind of like an 80s movie that seems like a sort of thing that happens and it boils down to this has all been about a game all this kind of quiet stuff is being intercut with a high-speed chase yes and wade is rigged up in a van and every time he the van jolts he moves in sort of an inception style kind of he gets the the easter egg in adventure 
and that unlocks the final key and he's trying to put the key through the keyhole and it keeps missing because he yeah. keeps falling over. Now that was that was a cute little interaction. Again, I, I did feel that the real world and, and the and the game world were connected, which again is a yeah, ch- challenging yeah. thing to do in a film. But I found like the the ending a bit half baked and messy, and maybe it was because my brain was not working anymore. Which sort of part so of the ending? He he gets the Easter egg in adventure. He gets the final key, which opens up, I think, a recreation of Halliday's bedroom for when he was a kid. And we find this creepy little kid version of Halliday. I think the the message, I suppose, of the film, the last line of the film, is is regarding how reality is the only thing that's real. And, yeah. it's, and it's about, as, as Parsifal, he, he wins the final key by playing adventure. And he's, he's muttering about how it's not, it's not winning, it's taking part. Um, it seems just an ever so slightly bit half baked and, and a bit messy well, I, I and, think what he... and then you've got this nice image of um halliday taking his little kid version away with him and, and be, you can talk about how nostalgia i mean are we, are we meant is it meant to imply that halliday wishes that he hadn't spent so much time being on the in, in the video game world and rather be in the real real world this is after two hours of like fuck me the 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 internet's amazing and fuck me the oasis is where i want to be but uh, yeah, I think that's the that's the message because he's sort of looking. All these clues are referring to things that he kind of regrets, um, and uh, his idea is that yes, he would have given it all up just for the love of a woman, kind of kind of thing, which is sort of what Wade does, and that just like the real world's better because mm. I've got a girlfriend now. Yeah, see, again, that's a reason for, for it, wait, I think it slightly doesn't stick the landing because, as we established, the real world is fucked. The real world is a nightmare. He starts, yeah. he talks about how his parents died in the bandwidth wars. His, um, everyone, again, is escaping. And of course, you know, this is a big problem with today where people are escaping rather than actually solving problems. But he, he does split the fortune with his mates, with the faint, with the high five. Um, but he also decides to shut off the Oasis two days a week. Yeah. And, you know, this seems really weird coming from me because I, I actually hate a lot of social media and, and all that. St- and I feel addicted to it and all that jazz. But if somebody told me, if someone across the world just decided for me that on Tuesdays and Thursdays I couldn't access Facebook or, or, the, or just particular websites, I would lose my... Flipping shit. <laughs> if, you, if you couldn't access the internet on Tuesdays, you wouldn't get the latest edition of Games on Film. No, you wouldn't. Your... But again, it's, it's, it's the fact that he said on Tuesdays and Thursdays. What? Who decided? But that's Imagine what... if you got two days off a week and they happened to be Tuesdays and Wednesdays. You'd just be... Thursdays. Tuesdays and Thursdays. You'd just not exist to all your friends. But that's what I was asking about earlier, is just like, if, if the Oasis was a school or a business or that, yes. you know, operating thing, then... How does that work? Does just businesses just like, oh, okay, I guess I better fax you this no, message true. rather and, than email you and now. Yeah, he, he, Ready Player One puts a positive spin on this. They say, well, the real, everyone else is still living in stacks and the world is a nuclear hellhole and the world could literally end tomorrow. But I'm here with, with the Pickmanic Pixie Dream Girl on my lap, uh, kissing her away in my lovely 80s apartment. Credits. Yeah. <laughs> so... I mean, as I said earlier, I, I do feel that I actually enjoyed it. 
I think I want, I want to see it again when I've got a better presence of mind, when I've not been, uh, when I'm not so tired. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot to take in. And what, now I know where the plot's going, I think I would enjoy it even more. And, and as I said, I've, I've said a few times, I do think it's a, a definite improvement on the book, which is you don't always get um, when you when you get book adaptations. Um, but what do you think? Um, I agree it's an improvement on the book, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I think it strips away some of the less savoury stuff. I think it streamlines it... Um, uh, quite a bit and I think it's sort of uh, I think because it's you're watching it as opposed to reading it um, it doesn't seem feel so much like a list of references yeah and how it's sort of told visually I mean you know maybe the book could have been written better I think but I think it's just the nature of the written word is going to make things come off as a just a sort of stream of consciousness, as you say, list of things that... The few, the few things which annoy people about the book is, is the list of references, the writing style, and the sort of, again, sort of sexist view of, 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 of the female characters. And I think the film corrects these three things. Yes. Um, so I, it's definitely an improvement. I think there's still a lot... There's still... It's all a bit too much, I mm. think, even if... You know, forgiving that it was on a Sunday morning that, you know, at sort of 10 a.m. <laughs> that we decided to watch this. Um, but I think it is a bit too much. It's too dense. There's just too much happening mm. in the scenes. I, I, I felt there was, apart from towards the end, a bit of a disconnect between the VR and real world mm. stuff. I know that's meant to, it's meant to look like that, the way it's filmed, the way it's shot and presented. But I feel like from a, director, a directorial sense... There wasn't wasn't the same kind of consistency. It felt like Spielberg was directing the real world stuff, mm. and an animation director was directing the VR stuff because really? it didn't have the same sort of framing or or you know it was framed like a video game, and I know that's intentional, <laughs> but it sort of I don't know it didn't quite gel so much mm. for me, and I I just felt it was a little bit embarrassing in places. It was a little bit cringy. Um, some of the stuff which is sort of thrown out there i know it's just but i was trying to work out you know why do i like something like spaced why do i think scott pilgrim versus the world is okay Mm. when that's doing the same thing but i think why those are different is that the references are kind of part of the texture you can enjoy it without knowing the references Mm. i sort of just when i was watching it i was just putting myself in the shoes of someone who hadn't read the book doesn't know much about video games and you know those kind of things and just like is there anything they can tease out of this sort of thing? And like... Well, as I was saying earlier, I, although I feel like I'm a lot more positive about this film than yourself, um, I still feel there, there is a slight hollowness to it and there is um, a lot of m- more interesting stories and questions it can be doing with um, with what it presents. And it decides to go for a sort of standard adventure story that we, we've seen quite a lot that the big, the big evil organization of the big uh, nasty businessman gets his, his, you know, gets beaten by the little people. Yeah. Cause Hollywood studios and, and multimedia yes. corporations, which own oh. all these properties and, and it's license the wall them they out. put over our eyes. They like us to think that they're just, you know, 
mom and pop movie studios with a freshly baked movie on the windowsill. It's, it's like all those anonymous masks from V for Vendetta. Mm. And just like, take that capitalism. I'm going to yeah. buy your Warner Brothers sanctioned You know, if it does feel that you know, playful Spielberg is here, though, and that's nice. I, I must admit, I've not seen a Spielberg film at the cinema for some time. I keep seeming to always missing him. And, and Well, I saw Bridge of Spies with was that any good? Mr. Rylance. Yeah, it was pretty good. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, it's this felt like popcorn Spielberg again which is very nice and uh, and there might have been just a facsimile it might have just been a recreation of the 80s but it still it still felt close enough for me yeah I, I think my sort of the thing is is that it probably just comes at a few years too late mm. in this post Mass Effect 3 ending post Gamergate post Ghostbusters mm. hoo-ha yes. you know the internet I mean very hypocritical statement coming up uh-huh. but the internet gave nerds a voice and it turns mm-hmm. out they're all annoying <laughs> well i might have to edit that bit out <laughs> yeah, so maybe adjust the bass to make our voices less annoying perhaps make yeah maybe lovely so. but I, I, I sort of feel like we're living in a, a time where it's no longer the, this this sort of um references and nostalgia does not an entertainment make mm. and i feel like we're sort of past that now and this film would probably be like hooray if it was made five years ago Mm. um but i think now it's just a bit like um yeah (laughs) well but it was okay it It was was, it was i i found it fairly entertaining it was pretty all right it was mm. fine well, like i said i feel like i want to go and see this again sounds like you probably will wait to I see it i think again. i need to I, I mean i know we left it a week and i'm glad we did but mm. i i still think i need a few mm. years before i can before the headache subsides it's, i've been thinking about it since so it's, mm. it's clearly had an effect on things but i feel like i just need to chill out a little <laughs> bit more um those were our thoughts i suppose on ready player one um i would recommend it rory would say with, with caution i'd, I'd say recommend. i'd recommend it for people who read the book or people I, I think people who have this idea as to what it is mm. it's like they'll see it and they'll know it is what it is but what it is isn't as bad as yeah. it so could be it wasn't quite what you expected I suppose. Well, I, it, I might, didn't... it might not be what some people expect. Yes, yeah. it's not. It's not. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, next week we're expect. I'm not sure what next time I should say. Um, we're not sure quite what we're expecting because it is um, the cinematic launch of the Rampage franchise. That's very um, confident. Franchise. Yeah. Yes. So episode three. Rampage, Rampage will be coming soon, so go see it at the cinema and, and listen along with us. Mm, Not what? actually in the cinema, that would be inappropriate. <laughs> well, what a, what a, if we want to get in touch, tell us about this episode, or the episodes before, or what they think uh, they want to see in Rampage, where should they contact us? Yeah, yeah so you can email us, gamesonfilmpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, twitter.com slash gamesonfilmpod. We're also on Facebook slash gamesonfilmpod. All the episodes are available on soundcloud.com slash gamesonfilmpod. You can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Rory Steele, R-O-Y-S-T-W-E-L-E. I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> my uh, Twitter handle is at onlymanwhocan. And yes, uh, thank you very much for listening. Thanks again to David Lightfoot for providing the awesome theme music. And we hope that you enjoyed this episode and... Tune in next time. Yeah. 
for Rampage. Rampage. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.